This is not the first time I've introduced you to propaganda. I don't know how you remember uh, another video that we've showed here. I've seen him live. I, I have such a, a high level of respect for um, the work he does and the conviction he holds. He does a lot with spoken word, and it always brings such a poignant uh, message. Um, and it kind of frames in a little bit of what I want to talk tonight. And I'm coming at it from a unique angle because I think what it means to be a follower of Christ Whatever kind of ethnic or economic class you come from, I think what we're invited into is a minority position. And that's something that we need to come to grips for if we're going to follow Christ with any bit of obedience um, and conviction. And so you could find yourself in places where you feel like the lone person left out. You could find yourself in a place where everyone else seems to be more educated. Uh, you could find yourself where you might be the poorest person in the room. You could find yourself, if some of you ladies work in a, a male-dominated office where you're like, I'm the only sh female around. You could find yourself in a place where there's a bunch of men who are all very handy and you can't even screw in a light bulb. But there are places that we find ourselves that I would simply coin as the minority position. And here's the thing. Jesus comes to us and he identifies with our feelings, whatever context, whatever setting, whatever background that you had, and, and understands the idea that you are underrepresented. Have you ever been in a place where you feel like, I am the only one who thinks differently in this room. I'm the only one that I feel like is a Christ follower or is concerned about justice around us. And this is what Christ comes to do because what he invites us into, what he demonstrates with the humanity of his life is he's willing to cross social divides at the risk of his own health, at the risk of his own reputation, at the risk of his own safety, he invites us to go into all of the world, into all people groups, and play the role of the minority position. I grew up in San Francisco. I did not always feel like I was the prevailing class. I grew up in public schools, and so there was much more diversity, and the white kid kind of stood out. But I learned to make a lower level of assumption about what people believed and how people spent their weekends and how people, what could they could afford and couldn't afford. Um, it, was a, it was a really formative experience for me, but it also began to inform how I'm supposed to walk with Christ feeling like I'm sort of a lone survivor in this thing. Before we go any further, I want to say thanks for uh, Uncle Wesley and our youth tribe. And we have a little gathering that we want to dismiss uh, our youths to. So if you are in junior or senior high and want to go have a little sesh together, uh, Wesley and the... The guys uh, are, uh, are going out. Boy, we've we, we got to pray for some girls. Uh, uh, anyway, I won't, I won't joke about that. Uh, anyway, here, here's what Jesus does is he comes along and he starts to encourage us to be able to identify with people that are simply different than ourselves and not only identify with them, but be salt and light, be love. Bring the kingdom of God. And so when we talk here at Mission Hills about one of our rhythms, we talk about compassion, simply recognizing people's needs as different than our own. 
I think that's really formative because we all find ourselves in a needy place. We all find ourselves maybe in some level a privileged place. But there are times where we do recognize even though I have a lot, even though I have friendship, even though I can put food on my table and a roof over my head, there is an opportunity to identify with people whose needs are different than our own. And that is one of the ways we start to walk through a transformational experience. So this, um, this season of Lent, I wanted to do a series that involves, um, and I'm calling it the dirt underneath his nails. Leading up to the cross, I want to pick out different places where we see the humanity of Christ on full display. Because it is very easy for us, even tempting for us, to kind of give Jesus a pass. Yes, he was God in human form, except that he was still divine. And I would suggest to you that Christ walked in full humanity. So when you struggle, Christ understands that struggle. Christ embodies the love of God despite the temptations, despite the struggle, despite all of the challenges. And so Jesus walks in this place where he has to face accusation, where he has to face slander, where he has to face confrontation and untrue things that are said. He has to, to, to wrestle with the reality of a compromised good name and a good reputation. And he invites us into that, not to be loud, but to trust God to be our defense, to trust God in the face of confronta confrontation where we can't change another person's mind, that God is still on his throne and God is the God who sees. He sees, and, and if he sees, he cares. So I want to talk a little bit tonight about how this experience with Jesus comes when he ends up before the Sanhedrin. And so part of this dirt underneath his nails is going through the, what's, what's traditionally known as the Stations of the Cross. One of those stations is, last week we looked at where Judas betrayed him in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Well, they arrest him and they take him into uh, jail. Um, it was when everyone was having Passover. It was when he was outside of the city walls because a man so wildly popular would not and, and would not have, have been able to, they would not have been able to get away with this. But they did it when everyone else was distracted doing this Passover feast. And so I want to paint a picture, give you a little more culture give you a little more understanding, a little more context, because this creates the gravity of what Jesus did for us, but Jesus invites us into as well. Um, and so the questions that I have, well, let me just look at a verse out of Mark uh, 27, and it says this, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. In other words, they conspired to kill him. They bound him, they led him away, and they handed him over to Pilate, the governor. So we've just got to stop, and let me frame in a few questions so we understand what we're trying to answer here. First, why would you want to kill someone whose message is love others as you would love yourself? Whose message is to trust in God the Father, of which they believed in, and to somehow create this peace and prosperity in the city in which you live? Why is that message such a threat? And why is it that these Jews would hand him over to a Roman official? And why is it that there's a Roman governor at this time in Jerusalem? 
of all places. So with those questions in mind, I want to give you a little bit of background. The Jews had a yearly, well, they had about three yearly festivals, the kind of festivals that you make a pilgrimage for, and people would load up and make the journey along the way. And this one, of the kind of the Super Bowl of them all, was Passover. And Passover was a huge celebration because what it did was you were trying to instill the vision, the values, and the beliefs in, in up-and-coming generations. But it reminded you, whatever your circumstances are today, of God's faithfulness throughout the ages. And it was a reminder that God had delivered the people of God out of slavery and out of captivity, and they didn't want to forget that. But more than a religious observance, what the Jews were really celebrating with singing, with dancing, and with retelling the story was that God hears the cries of the people in most need. He hears the cries of the vulnerable among us. So God, in that context, worthy of our praise, was to be celebrated as faithful and attentive. That, that, that sounds like good news to me. And so they would come. In fact, it did have a little bit of a hopefulness because they were an oppressed people. Rome was the global military superpower of the day, and the Jews had a saying it was a hopeful and anticipatory saying it would be next year at Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. And this was kind of like, you know, when we get near Easter or when we get near Christmas, we sort of have these phrases. It's like, he is risen. And you're like, yeah, he's risen indeed. And there's this hopefulness about what Christ did and is going to do again. And so they had a phrase next year because they were looking almost politically that someday that they could now be delivered once again from their captors, from their oppressors. And so what they would do oftentimes with some of the zealots among them is that they would stir up even riots. And so when you get about 200,000 people coming in for a celebration that would last for a week long, you could get some agitators, right? And so they would gather and there would be sometimes riots. And so you have to ask the question, what do you do when you're supposed to be in charge and you're Rome and you're Pilate? Well, you put on a display of force. So Pilate, uh, well, the Roman Empire at that time, specifically Caesar Augustus, he believed that he was the divine. He believed that he was God. And in fact, he had it minted on all the coins to create a messaging. We have online, we have all kinds of ways to market what we believe. Their way was to put on the coins, Caesar is Lord. Make no mistake about it, Caesar is Lord. And this is how they would partially get their word out. But then if you're Caesar and you're in Rome, how do you rule the world? How do you rule and maintain your reign in such a far-reaching place as Jerusalem? Well, you employ a Roman governor named Pilate to be your enforcer. And part of that enforcement became in the form of a tribute or a tax. Because if you're the global military superpower, in addition to being thinking you're the god, you have a lot of overhead. <laughs> You've heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome. Roads cost money. Military power costs money. And so here's Pilate, once a year, 
coming from Caesarea Philippi, about 20 miles away from Jerusalem, and he leads this military procession. He comes down, and he is in full regalia. It's like the, all the Sherman tanks, except there are chariots, and there's soldiers, and there's flags, and it's coming in as a demonstration of might and power meant for the sole purpose of intimidation. Oh, we're walking right into your party. Don't you dare get any ideas because resistance is futile. And this, as Jesus enters in, triumphal entry style on his donkey, he comes in from the east side, they come in from the west side, and you have two worlds colliding. Jesus is like all humility, not coming in as a, a, a conquering king. He's on a donkey. They're coming in like full military brigade style. Like, don't even get started here. And this is what's happening at Passover. And so here's the, these Jews that get kind of worked up about his role there. And because if you're Pilate, you are not ever excited about 200,000 Jews coming together and go, woohoo, let's pray about some deliverance. Woohoo, let's celebrate us as a people. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. Don't get any ideas. I mean, at that time, 80 to 90% of the Jewish people were sub, just subsistent living. They were, they were farmers. They were peasants. I mean, we're talking like an oil press, uh, an olive press. We're talking about vineyard workers, like pickers. The, 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 these are not a well-to-do people. They're living hand-to-mouth day-to-day. And so now you have this kind of processional. So you see sort of the contrast, the tension rising as this Passover comes. Let me read for you the words that Mark records in Mark 15, and this is where we get Jesus being condemned. He's been brought before them in a sort of sneaky fashion. They arrest him outside of the city walls. They arrest him when everyone else is having their Passover supper. And, and, and so then they bring him in. And it says these words, very early in the morning, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. And so they bound Jesus, they led him away, and they handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Well, you have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things, and so again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? So see how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Another word that you could use here instead of amazed would be astonished, like disbelief, as in confused, like, why won't you say anything to these claims? Now, what's happening is the Sanhedrin is made up of 70 priests and scribes, with one of them being the high priest. And in the hundred years preceding Jesus' ministry, the temple had become entirely corrupted. And the high priest, which was always from, of the 12 tribes, there was one tribe that would be the nation of priests. So when Israel was divided into 12 tribes, you had the tribe of Levi that would always be part of the priesthood. They quit following biblical tradition, and it went out for auction essentially. Pilate got in cahoots with their religious elite, the wealthy of the Jews, and he started appointing the high priest under the condition that I'll give you these benefits if you help me keep a squash uh, on, on an uprising. 
And so the whole temple worship was now totally corrupt. And so you have one high priest who served for years, nine years himself, by the name of Anas. Anas had several sons that even after he was not the high priest, he put his sons in charge of it. So he was operating kind of like the godfather. And he was going to make sure his mafia-style family was going to maintain control. And what were they doing? They owned the flocks that every pilgrim had to buy their sacrificial lamb from, and they were jacking up the prices. They had a monopoly. They owned, they moved Wall Street into the temple courts, and they brought in and said, no, 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 if you want to exchange your your money, you do it with us with these inflated exchange rates. They were extorting and they were holding back money from paying other good and godly priests who weren't a part of the family network. And here's the thing, all the Jews knew it and they hated it. They're like, you're one of us and you're selling us out to Rome? You're in bed with Rome and you, got, you know our story and you're getting filthy rich. If you're a Jew coming to Jerusalem for Passover, you're pretty excited about a new normal. You're pretty excited about a change in the way of the status quo and God showing up and parting a new Red Sea, God showing up and bringing a new Moses to deliver the people. So when you hear rumblings of a Jesus-like character showing up, you're all in except Jesus doesn't give a defense at his own trial. He takes it on the chin. So I just want to like bring this back to you and what we're talking about when we end up in minority positions where you feel like you're not being given the benefit of the doubt. I mean, this is just on a friendship level. When you feel like you've been judged before you could share your heart or judged before you could explain your intentions, we experience exactly what Jesus has gone through and he comes through it with flying colors and yet it still cost him his life. This is what's remarkable about the obedience and, and the, the, just the declared worth of his heavenly father to follow through on this. But this is what comes forward. And so... Um, Here's what they do. The Sanhedrin vote at the break of dawn before anyone can be a part of this jury. They all condemn him to death. And in this moment, they can't really, and, and this is the thing, a crucifixion was a Roman form of death. And so it wasn't for the Jews who were the ones that were offended or upset were the ones that, that couldn't actually order this. And so instead of accusing him of his blasphemy, which the Romans could care less about, they accuse him of treason. Jesus never claimed to be the coming king. He claimed to be the Messiah. And so if it was any other kind of king, Rome would be very anxious about eliminating that threat. He did not say that, they said that, and yet he stared at his accusers. He stared down at his at, at this sort of um, false narrative, this, the, and he went with it. And this is what was hard. Now, the temple was an interesting place. It was the center of the the sort of heart and soul of the Jewish community and the Jewish culture. They believed it was the very presence of God that would dwell there. 
And so here you have all of these leaders that had been kind of corrupted. And the high priest, uh, and so this is what you have. Now, my point in describing all of this is that Jesus came into Jerusalem that year and he didn't defend himself in that moment because they were so threatened by giving up their privilege. They were so threatened by the idea that they would be overturned, that somehow there would be kind of a redistribution of wealth, that they figured out a way to have him entirely eliminated. They killed him. And I would say it was primarily for economic reasons. And you're like, Jesus, just say something. Now, consider this. I know that Jesus knew what all the prophecies said, and I knew he understood his mission, why he was sent into the world. But let me ask you a question, because we've all had difficult conversations. We, we've all had sort of a misunderstanding. We've all felt kind of falsely sort of accused or maybe falsely evaluated. Uh, but consider this. If Jesus would have gone to his accusers with any kind of defense, would it have changed their opinion? No, absolutely not. Because accusers don't ever want to change their opinion. There's not an open position. There's not a sort of dialogue position. And so maybe when we are sort of looking at each other and trying to figure out how to coexist with one another, whether it be in a marriage, or whether it be in an office workplace with a colleague or a supervisor, or whether it be in a, in a larger extended family context, or maybe with some struggling, difficult neighbors, whatever the context is, what I would simply suggest is when, when, when Jesus comes along and chooses the way, I'm going to let God be my defense. Confrontation needs to be evaluated in, is this going to change anyone else's mind? Now, if you read the different gospel accounts, Pilate was basically begging him, change my mind. I, I, I can give you freedom here. I, I can see a way out. But Jesus, in full humanity, with full obedience, entire free will, follows through. Um... And that is a real struggle for me because I like to think that I do things with the best intentions. Uh, I like to think that I do things uh, um, sort of with a sort of thoughtfulness. I, I, I'm not a real flippant person. And so if someone has a different viewpoint of me, I tend to want <laughs> to clarify that and defend it. And so I'm prone to being defensive because I know that I'm the only one, so I appreciate you just letting me share my story. Uh, but Jesus comes here, and he understands what it's like to be confronted. He understands what it's like to be made entirely vulnerable. He understands what it's like to have the cost of a good reputation. Um, and, and what he does is not feel the need to be defensive. Last week, I introduced the idea um, well, I shared the idea that is commonly understood as soft power. 
hard power would be like a military strength. It's, it's the government exacting sanctions on another company, uh, country. But soft power is a more attractive, more persuasive, more influential without it being coercive. Jesus comes in with humility. Jesus comes in with character on his side, with a purity of heart. And so there is actually no need for him to defend himself. He has put himself at the mercy of his heavenly father, even though the outcome is going to cost him his very life. And so I... I'm reminded of what Jesus comes to the table with in this place of making himself entirely vulnerable. Here's a verse out of 1 Peter. It says this. There will be times you feel like, oh, excuse me, when Jesus was insulted, he did not, under, uh, did not answer back with an insult. But when he suffered, he did not threaten. But he placed his hopes in God the righteous judge. So there will be times when we feel like we are in a minority position. Always people going to judge you. Always people who are going to criticize. They're going to blame you. They're going to say maybe even untrue things. And I would simply say, when this happens, consider. Consider this. What do you think God sees? I think God sees the details. I think God sees the truth. I think God sees your heart. And can that be enough? Super important if we're going to be people of faith to say, God, give me words, but help, help me to have the, the truth of that you see. There's a verse that um, David prayed in, in, in the Psalms, um, and, and it was sort of expressing, and David understood leadership. He understand making hard choices. He made bad choices, so he's not spotless, but he prayed this. He says, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken, and my salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock and my refuge. Can I just invite you just to bow your heads with me? And I would just want to give you a, a, a chance to just kind of interact with some of these thoughts. My suspicion is maybe as you've been listening, your mind has been reviewing some of the conversations. Maybe there's uh, that you've been having, maybe some of the tension that you feel. There might even be a, a face that comes to mind. Um, I just want to talk about the nature of confrontation, the nature of feeling like we have to defend ourselves. Jesus stood in his accuser's faith and, and he was right. He was right. He understands what it's like to be right when everyone else is wrong or silent. And he understands when people's jealousy, misunderstanding turns to slander and action. He made himself vulnerable. I'd just like to suggest when it comes to spiritual terms, vulnerability that is never risked is intimacy that is never gained. And this is how we forge a deeper walk with Christ. So let me just ask you a couple of questions as you pray and you think, can, can we trust God with our name, our reputation, to be our defense? Very simply, do you believe that God sees? If so, answer, I do, by faith. 
help my unbelief. If there is a situation, whether you're currently thinking of or in the future, think about this. What is your part? What is their part? Own it. Be humble enough to admit your part. We have been made as the ministers of reconciliation. We have been brought into this union with Christ that allows us with his strength to say, I own it. That's on me. And this one's hard, but I want to ask you. Resist defensiveness and ask questions. Help me understand. Oh, that's not what I meant. Or I'm sorry for the misunderstanding. This is the way we begin to find common ground. This is the way we choose to be peacekeepers, light. And can you trust God to be your defense? God, I pray for a growing awareness of your presence in our life. I pray for a growing sensitivity of our heart to yield and turn towards you. I pray that as we operate as people who are insecure and broken and far from perfect, we would sense your strength. We would sense your wisdom and your guidance. Help us to steward our influence for your namesake. Help us to be people of peace. Help us to come alongside and clarify the misunderstanding without feeling like we need to defend. Father, I thank you that in all your humanity, you felt the weight of what it means to be that minority position. And I pray that you would invite us to be an alien and a stranger in a foreign land, but walk with a growing sense of citizenship and hope. As citizens of heaven, may we bring your good news. May we be messengers of your redemptive story. And will you be our defense? Purify our own hearts. We give you this time in worship and in prayer. We want to just singularly meditate on your precepts and experience your presence in our going, in our going out. We declare your worth. We pray for the needs among us. We pray for, we pray for an antivirus. We pray for an anecdote. We pray for those who are on the most vulnerable cases. We pray for a, a redemptive thread that would be woven through a divine tapestry of what was meant for harm. You would redeem and restore and repair. That your spirit would break forth and that there would be a greater amount of dependence on you, a greater humility and an ability to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so help us to be people of hope people of justice and of mercy. I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide, guard, and direct us as we seek to make your kingdom known. And so we pray your kingdom come in Austin as it is in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.